welcome to A Reason for Hope. I am your co-host. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I am in studio with Bo Olette, one of the pastors here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, streaming live from Tucson, Arizona. How you doing, Bo? Hey, doing awesome, man. It's good to be on the show. You changed your look. Yesterday you had the cool hat and the big bright shirt, and uh, today it's... Uh, Yesterday was Duck Dynasty Day, is and today, today is just regular Bo Day. You regular know. ninja bow day. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was fun, though. I loved wearing I sported a, you didn't see it, I sported an incredibly bright yellow uh, long sleeve kind of worker's shirt with a camo Calvary Chapel yeah. hat. And you look like you just come off a construction site. Yeah, I got, the, I got the hat actually from Pastor Juno Kim down at Calvary Chapel of Saharita. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, and he's nice. he's got these camo Calvary, uh, m- you know, merch stuff all out there. It's great. Hmm. Awesome. Well, we're so glad to be with you today. This is Friday. We do a, a weekday, every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m., a Bible uh, question and answers program. We live stream right here from Tucson, Arizona, here in our studio at our church, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And uh, the way we get questions from individuals really all over the world, we have people listening in uh, from all over the planet, Uh, but we live stream to multiple platforms. Uh, You can catch us on Facebook. Uh, Our handle for Facebook, if you want to try to find our page quickly, is just go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson. And if you don't mind, would you please uh, hit that like button and share our page with uh, your friends and maybe even post this video to your feed. That way we can get more and more people to listen in because our goal here is to really be salt and light to the whole world, to proclaim the gospel to all peoples everywhere. Uh, and this is just one of the many ways we try to do that, not just here for our community, but for everyone who has questions about <clears throat> faith, about God, about um, can we trust the Bible? What, how do we apply certain passages that may sometimes be hard to understand to our lives? What does it mean? So please chime in, and if you do watch us on Facebook, you can go right to the comment section, leave your question, and we'll try to tackle it here on the program. Uh, you can also catch us on YouTube. We simultaneously live stream in our YouTube handle. If you do watch us on YouTube, if you prefer that platform, please subscribe and hit that notification bell. We live stream all of our services and special events and this program, A Reason for Hope, right to YouTube. And our YouTube handle is A Reason for Hope 546. So we'd encourage you to do that. We are gonna be uploading this program to our Rumble uh, platform channel. So if you happen to catch it there after the fact, we don't live stream just yet, but we hope to do that sometime in the future. Uh, Please follow us. If you want to avoid social media platforms altogether and are one of those individuals who just prefer to, uh, you just wanna watch the program and don't wanna have to have a Facebook account or go to the YouTubes, uh, you can do so by going to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com and go to the watch live tab. And not only can you watch our services, this program, but you can also make prayer requests and leave questions or comments in the chat function of that page. So I encourage you to do that. We also have an app, a Bible app, that has a really nifty Bible where you can take notes, uh, you can do scripture memorization, you can go on reading plans, as well as keep on top of all events going on here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can connect with chat groups, make prayer requests, uh, all kinds of things you can do. You can watch past archive sermons as well as this program. 
So if you want to download that from the iTunes and Apple, I'm sorry, the Apple iTunes and Google Play Store, you can do so. We also live stream our services in this program to Amazon Fire Products and Roku. So if you want to add that hard channel to those platforms, you can do so as well. And finally, if you are perhaps wanting to ask a question a little bit more discreetly, uh, you can do that by simply uh, emailing us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. And we can tackle your questions during the program from your email question. <laughs> that was a lot, man. <laughs> all, it always is. It so. always is. That's right. But let's pray and let's get yeah, into let's, it, huh? Let's do that. Yeah, go ahead and pray for us. Both. Yeah, absolutely. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the time that me and Adrian have to be in the studio uh, this evening and uh, just pour into your word. We pray that uh, your loving kindness would uh, move through us in powerful ways uh, uh, and touching people's lives. We pray for safety for people on their way home, and we pray that you would guide uh, your church, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to get right into the questions. We have some left over from earlier in the week. And our first question for us today pertains to one of the chapters from the book of Romans. And it has to do with uh, confession and what that means. And the questioner, let me find the question here, uh, asked it this way. It was from Rand. Uh, why is it important that I confess with my mouth? that Jesus is Lord. What is significant about the mouth? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, there. Uh, let me read the passage just so everybody who's listening knows kind of what we're talking about with this passage. So it's in Romans chapter 10. It's a really popular cha uh, passage, by the way. Uh, I'll start in, um, let's see, we'll start in uh, verse... Mm, uh, I guess I could start in verse 5. It says, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. So there is a righteousness by the law, uh, and that's the law of Moses, uh, the old covenant, and, and that is a righteousness that is done by works. It says, um, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, I got a little spider there on the table. <laughs> that was interesting. For it is by the heart that you believe uh, you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on his name, on the name of the Lord, will be saved. So when you read the passage a little more, you, you, you get an idea that it's not, it's not so much like a, almost like if you don't ever say Jesus is Lord, you know, like this, um, I want to say like this, um, you know, sometimes you can hyper um, kind of um, think of this passage where 
you go, wait, did the thief on the cross say Jesus is Lord? And you go, man, I don't think he did. So he's not in the kingdom. You know, you can kind of hyper this Mm -hmm. where you can see what Paul's getting at is this idea that's found in the Old Testament, one of living by faith, trusting in the words of God, trusting in the work of God. And, And so confession is talked about here as an act in believing in our heart is also something that Paul expresses here. Uh, confession is simply just saying, um, saying, uh, admitting, saying what, what is true about what God says. It's, you know, and this is why it's so important, is that when we confess, what we're doing is we're, we're saying what God says about his son. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the important part of this is uh, when you confess with your mouth, like, and again, you don't want to be, you know, hyper about this because some people can't speak. And so obviously the scripture is not teaching that if you can't speak, then you can't be saved. Or for instance, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus is not saying that if you can't hear, then you can't be saved. So we have to throw that out, yeah. you know, as an interpretation. <clears throat> so another way, in other words, you're saying that Paul is not adding a work to salvation that, oh, by the way, you have to not just have faith mm-hmm. and be saved by grace as a gift from God. You also have to say these words with your mouth. <laughs> like jump, these specific the words. Pool, right. And the head's got to go all the way down. Yeah. And, and you got to, like, believe in your heart exactly this phrase. He's not adding works to yeah, salvation. Some, yeah, He's, some kind of magical work. Yeah, like a, casting a spell. Just casting if I a say spell. the right, just the right words in the right way. Yeah. That's how I was taught to pray when I, when my grandma would talk to me about her faith. I, it was a ritual, and I, it was a repetitious Roman Catholic ritualized prayer. So whenever yeah. I prayed, I thought, if I don't do this, this symbol, this way, in this order, this many times, it's With not going to be the heard. the beginning and the right end of all the right words, then it's not a prayer. Yeah. I'm not talking to God. Yeah, and, you know, I, I would always suggest to people that, you know, you look throughout the Bible at just the prayers that are in the Bible. So, and if you wanted to, like, go, hey, okay, you know, what are the prayers like, you know, of the people in the Bible? Go through the Old Testament. Look at the prayers. You know, I think of Solomon's. I think of Daniel's. I think of Ezra's, I think of Nehemiah's, you know, just right off the top of my head, you know, and you can look into the, the history of the kings of Israel, and you'll see that, um, you'll see some wonderful prayers, and, and, and you'll be surprised how they prayed, and it's, uh, it's very beautiful, but it's, it's not in some kind of what you're talking about, Adrian, some kind of format where it's like, you say this exact thing. But now there is something important of what Paul is getting at here, and I don't want to poo-poo it at all because and, and, it is very significant. And just remember, confession means that we agree with what God said about Jesus. And when Paul says, hey, we call Jesus Lord, we're making a confession of Jesus as Lord, that, that's an important confession. And it really seems like in the Bible, in the New Testament, it was really one of those kind of staples, like an early confession of people in this day. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, also in verse 3, where this term Jesus is Lord is used again. And, uh, and so we could, 
probably imagine that the early church, this was one of the confessionals that, t- like, that people would say, maybe even during their baptisms, um, that they would say, Jesus is Lord. Now, why would that be so significant? Well, you know, the word Lord, kyrios, is used over 6,000 times in the Greek uh, Septuagint, and that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to translate the name of Israel's God, Yahweh. So when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you see this word kyrios come up all the time, Lord. It's translated Lord, and it is used of Yahweh, God, the God, the only true and living God. And so Paul, obviously in this section, is being very clear ascribing deity to Jesus by saying, Jesus is Lord. Now, that was a big deal back in the day, right? Because you had, um, you know, those were kind of fighting words, you know, when you said Jesus is Lord. Remember the big beef with Jesus at his trial, you know, right? You know, hey, they say, you say, Jesus, that you're a king, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus says, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, you say rightly and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. It must have been quite a statement, right? And Jesus talks about his second coming, you know? And, and, um, and you know, they just kind of listen to him and just kind of like, okay, whatever. And, and kind of, I don't, and then they say, I don't, you know, Pilate says, I don't, I don't see a problem with this guy, you know? I mean, he's, he's obviously religious dude, but, mm-hmm. but I don't see a major deal. And he tells them, you know, my kingdom's not of this world. <laughs> right, right. And he's like, well, look, what threat is this guy? He, he's like off in La La Land. Right, right. But to, you know, but to the to the Jews were making the point that, no, he says he's Lord. <clears throat> he's making himself one to be with God. Well, yeah, he's making himself one to Before be God. Abraham, I am. The yep. Lord said to my Lord, you know, when he talks about David, mm-hmm. he makes himself out to be God. He makes the Messiah out to be God. Right. <clears throat> and he really, and, and, and the Jews picked up, the, the Jewish hegemonical power structure picked up on it and, and said, and the way they tried to get him killed was to say to the Roman leaders, hey, this guy's an affront to Caesar. This guy's claiming to be Lord even over Caesar. Mm. And, and so when Paul says, hey, make confession with your mouth, meaning say what God says about his son, you know, we are to say, make the, that's what confession means. Um, Jesus is Lord. That is important because what it is saying is that Jesus is God. And those, again, that was something that if you said back then, your, your life could be, um, you know, very much... Um, in the hands of government at that, you could be breaking the law at that point by saying that. And this is why a lot of Christians went through such severe persecution in the early days of the, of the, of the church, mm. uh, because they would not um, say Caesar is Lord. They would just confess Jesus is Lord. And because of that, it was a breaking, a breaching of the law uh, of Rome, and therefore there was capital punishment for that. And so, you know, again, just to, you know, reiterate, it does, you know, don't, don't get so um, 
specific where you go, oh, it's you got to have a mouth. You know, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> saying that, you know, this is if you're a believer, you are confirming with your mouth what has already taken place in your heart. Because he goes on later on to, to describe, right. you know, for with your heart that you it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And the idea being that. <clears throat> In the way I describe faith, usually when I'm on the mission tour, on the mission field, and I have a group, an audience of college students who have a negative understanding of Christianity mm. and faith, <clears throat> I often will describe faith like this. I'll say that faith has three essential elements, uh, knowledge, belief, and will, or trust, or the will to trust. And the idea being that knowledge is sort of like mental assent confessing with your mouth. I am in agreement that Jesus is God in human form. He is the incarnate God, the divine creator in human form. Yeah, I mentally agree with that. So knowledge, I have that information. Belief means I believe that it's true, that I have now ascended to the place where I am in agreement. And then the will to trust is the will issue. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, faith for it to be faith, genuine biblical faith, I have to have knowledge of the truth. I have to believe that it's true. And then I have to entrust myself to a person. And by doing so, I will naturally confess Jesus is Lord when persecuted. And so it's kind of an idiot. It's idiomatic in the sense that I don't think Paul is literally, like you said, <clears throat> saying that you have to say these words out loud in front of people. And now your salvation is complete. Mm. He's speaking somewhat idiomatically, saying that this is what faith encompasses. And yeah. if you, uh, the idea of the mouth sort of, you know, when Jesus said out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a serious thing to confess, you know. Um, you know, and that, and that it, I mean, Paul talks about the great confession when he's talking in the book of Timothy, the great confession mm. of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. You know, and that what was that great confession? You know that he is the Christ. You know, um, and that is it, that's the you know it's a big deal to confess and to openly say, "Hey, Jesus is Lord. Mm. He is the Master," and and that is an affront to a world that has many other masters. Yeah. Um, and so you know, you see a belief in the heart here in this passage, meaning the inner part, and then the mouth, the outer. You know, and you see almost like the full encompassing of us giving our lives, mm -hmm. you know, to the Lord. It's real similar to when Paul describes just six chapters previous, Abraham's faith. Mm -hmm. On the inside, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, but then he affirmed or confirmed his faith by getting circumcised. It wasn't that circumcision saved him, mm -hmm. but it was, a, it was an affirmation of his faith by actually physically getting circumcised so that in this instance, in Romans 10, we have faith in our hearts, which saves you. That's efficacious for salvation. And the outworking of it is that confession is that when you are confronted about your faith, when you are put on trial, the only words that can come out of your mouth is Jesus is Lord. That's why I'm here. It's this natural outworking of someone who's been transformed by God's grace through faith. Yeah, absolutely. So it does carry weight in that day that, you know, it was written through by the Holy Spirit through mm -hmm. Paul. Um, uh, and it also carries weight today. Um, confession, again, just remember, it's just agreeing with what God says. Mm. That's what we're doing when we confess. I like that. Um, 
agreeing with God. Yeah, agreeing with God. Yep, from what we said. So it's very cool. And, um, you know, you'll see this kind of theme, by the way, even throughout the New Testament. I think of a book like 1 John. Well, um, which if you remember the, uh, you know, the whole point of that book, just briefly, is this idea, though, that we're just going over is the idea of confessing that Jesus mm. has come in the flesh. And, um, and that's the whole big sin in that yeah. book. Like and that, that the, no the, one but by the Holy Spirit can say Jesus is the Christ. Right, Jesus is Jesus Lord, is 1 Lord. Corinthians 12, 3. And that, or 12, yeah, 12, 2, 12, 3. Yeah, some, one of those. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that to deny that is the spirit of the Antichrist. Right, yeah, really that's right. And, and that's what John's getting at in that book about what is the sin, what is the big sin, you know? Mm. What, is the, what is the sin that Christians cannot do? You know, he, you know, his seed is in us. We cannot sin anymore. People go, mm. oh, that means we can't sin anymore? No, what he's talking about is the the great, mm. the sin of yeah. rejection. Yeah, First John 5, I love that. Yeah. Too. He was born of God, does not sin because he was begotten of God. Is it? Jesus His seed is in us. Keeps him and the evil one cannot touch That's him. right. He, yeah. yeah. And that, and what's the, what, what does that mean we cannot sin? It doesn't mean we don't sin yeah. because John's already told us that if we say we're without, with, or we're without sin yeah. in the book of First John, we are, we're a liar. Yeah. But he's talking about that sin of believing in Jesus that he's come in the flesh. And, um, and that we, we are kept, you know, in Christ, you know, mm-hmm. in our belief. Meaning, and the idea is that when God saves, he secures, mm-hmm. you know, which is kind of cool. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No one can snatch us out of his hand. Yeah. I love it. Well. It's a good question. Uh, yeah. Thanks for that question, Rand. And I uh, hope that was helpful for you. And if you haven't need any clarification, feel free to chime in. Yeah, and uh, I just want to give a shout out too to um, uh, my wife and and uh, my first our first pastor out in California, David Guzik. He does a wonderful um, commentator. Um, he has a wonderful website called Enduring Word, where all of his commentaries mm-hmm. on the Bible are free mm-hmm. and available to people. So you can always go to EnduringWord.com. And look up the passage that you know you have a question about, and see um, you know what uh, what is there for you. I think you'd be pretty um, um, pretty blessed by it. That's for sure. He's done uh, a great job of putting together um, quite a lot of material um, on that website. Awesome. Well, if I I'll dig it up here and I'll I'll put it up on the screen yeah. for those to uh, check it out if you want to take take a look at it. Yeah. Um, EnduringWord.com. It's I found it to be very, very helpful if I just want to get someone else's commentary on a specific passage that I'm struggling to understand. So yeah, very, yeah. Very Absolutely. <clears throat> well, Joy wants to know, uh, could you explain the Catholic tradition of Mary worship and how their traditions <laughs> justify the worship of carved images? That's a... That's a yeah, that's that's a, that's a big <laughs> one, you know. I would love to have Shawnee or um, um, you know Scott here mm-hmm. to kind of get into some of that history. Um, the first part is just uh, explaining kind of the history of yeah. of Mary worship, right? Why is it important that I? Uh, I'm sorry. Could you explain the Catholic tradition of Mary worship? Well, <clears throat> having come from Hispanic uh, background, my my mom and family on her side of the family are all from. Uh, Mexico and uh, my mom was born and raised in Nogales, Mexico and they came from a very 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 deeply religious Catholic background and tradition. Um, All my aunts and uncles and my grandmother were deep deep deeply committed Catholics 
and my mom have and I have uh, have gone the rounds over the years about this and uh, to clarify one thing <clears throat> I it would be I think most Catholics who know what they believe as far as Roman Catholicism is concerned would be somewhat offended by the idea of calling it worship um, they don't worship Mary in their opinion so that means that we have to really carefully define the word worship they venerate Mary they hold her in high esteem um, they would probably use the word obeisance yeah and and they don't even like when you say well why do you pray to Mary they say no we don't pray to Mary we ask Mary to pray for us and so <laughs> I would get into these debates with family because I, I am uh, an actual Protestant. I, uh, I was introduced to Christianity through Roman Catholicism, and then I protested. So I'm uh, uh, actually a real genuine Protestant in the sense that I, I would love to nail, uh, nail a letter to some doors. But, um, you know, my I would jokingly say, well, what is prayer? Prayer is talking to someone who's not a human being physically present before you. You're praying to someone not there who you think can hear you. And so when you're talking to Mary, you're praying to her. And so we would debate about that. But the idea is that Mary, <clears throat> the tradition is really this, that, that, the, that Mary was uh, without sin because a vessel of sin could not carry the God of the universe. So that's number one, that Mary was a human being who was brought into the world and conceived uh, without sin. So she was a sinless human being. Now there's debate, uh, I, I am assuming there's some debate whether that was something that, was, that happened to her at the moment of conceiving Jesus or if she was born that way. But um, nevertheless, Mary was without sin, uh, the Immaculate Conception. And that in order for, and because of that, she's, you know, sort of held in real high esteem. Not only that, they like to call her the mother of God, the idea of her carrying the incarnate creator of the universe uh, makes her sort of like the mother of God. Now we don't look at it that way. We look at it as she was a vessel used by God to bring about God's promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head this crimson thread that we see from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. But um, <clears throat> I, it's those reasons why there is a tradition of venerating Mary, praying the rosary, which is a prayer, which is talking to Mary and asking her to pray for us sinners, things like that. Um, but <clears throat> it does appear to us outside of that circle that it is a form of worship. And the graven images really used to bother me. We would go to uh, some of these uh, museums where they would have some of the bones of some saints. Yeah, like the relics. Yeah, and my mom would go to the statues of different saints and kiss their feet and pray, talk to them and ask them to pray for us, pray to this saint for that. And in my opinion, it really is a, a form of practical polytheism. You pray to this saint for this kind of answer. If you have this kind of issue, you pray to that saint. And uh, it is kind of a form of paganism that has gotten mixed with Christianity. And so that is the negative side of, of some of these doctrines. But that's where the tradition comes from. 
and they justify the graven images which are just simply ignoring the fact that the Bible says don't do that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I and I would like to even even take it beyond that. You know, like in the book of Joshua, when Joshua in um, chapter uh, I think it's twenty four uh, twenty four, yeah, he starts breaking down kind of the history of Abraham and uh, and Abraham's past uh, idolatry and. And then, you know, as the Old, Old Testament moves on, you get into books like Jeremiah, and um, I was trying to figure out what chapter it was, but Jeremiah really touches on some interesting, uh, Jeremiah 44, touches on some interesting ideas about the, this worshiping of the Queen of Heaven. And, um, and, and, and you see that Ezekiel even talks about this kind of stuff uh, as a prophet of Israel. And my point being is that Joshua knew the people, um, even Abraham, came from a, um, uh, an idol background. And, and then he left idolatry, worshipped the true and living God. But even by Joshua's day, the people of Israel still were struggling immensely with idol worship. And even into later on, in Jeremiah's day as a prophet, in Ezekiel's day as a prophet, Israel was still battling, worshiping the old gods of Egypt and the gods of Babylon and the neighboring gods of the Canaanites. And, and so we see that, you know, this kind of um, idolatrous uh, religious practices go way back. Um, you know, and so it's not a surprise that even within the early church, um, life when, um, and most people kind of look back to Constantine's influence into Christianity, um, the, the Roman emperor Constantine, that is. Mm. And That's why I like calling it practical polytheism. <laughs> yeah, 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 it, yeah. It's practically that, <laughs> even though these, uh, those who hold to these doctrines don't actually believe that it Mary is. and these saints are gods, yeah. but it's the practical application of polytheistic yeah. behavior right that is brought back from i think rome i think you're right that historically the pagan influence you don't see any of these kinds of things like you know with the eastern orthodox traditions like you do with the western church which would be rome yeah rome so um you know it's not a surprise um obviously in the new testament we don't see anything with uh this kind of veneration to mary in um, the Apostles' life. So throughout the book of Acts, uh, we don't see any of this veneration going on in the early church. In the epistles of Paul or Peter, we don't see any comment on this. Yeah, there's, um, there's even the belief that uh, Mary was taken up like you know, Enoch. They yeah. never saw death. Like a transfiguration kind of thing. Yeah, and so and th th to point out, too, that these doctrines aren't true. The idea of the Immaculate Conception is not a biblical concept. Romans 3 says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. Uh, just because God chose uh, by grace a vessel to bring about the Messiah does not mean that that person is sinless and perfect and ought to be uh, depicted in pictorially as you know this little small child and then the queen of heaven that, that's a not a biblical concept mm -hmm. yeah uh, um and and i would agree it's you don't see it throughout um the new testament so 
Uh, there is there is a history of when this became more popular and it became in a sense canonized um, and there is uh, um, history that you can get into with that and what I mean by canonized is when it becomes in a sense uh, stapled as the doctrine of the Holy Roman Church right because um, they have the in the end we believe in sola scriptura the idea that the scriptures are the final arbiter for truth, mm -hmm. but in the Roman Catholic theology, really, in a sense, it's sola iglesia, the idea that the church is the final authority, and that is uh, scripture and tradition are the rules for doctrine, life, and practice, and so they would categorize these all these uh, peripheral practices that we can't seem to find in the Bible as a tradition of the church, and since the papacy, the papal succession, meaning there's always a pope, in the manner of Peter, when, when he says to Peter, you know, you are, I will build, uh, you are Peter, you are pebble, and I, upon this rock, this boulder, I will build my church, they strip from that passage the idea that there is a boulder, a foundational leader for the church, successfully called the Pope. And Peter was the first Pope, according to Catholic doctrine, and this authority uh, can add to doctrine, add to inspiration so the scripture isn't the only source for truth it is also the the, the papals the pope's words as well as church tradition so that's where you can get some of these ideas from yeah and, and that, i think that's well said you know so um you know it, it's not i i think it's important that you just kind of look at the broad picture of it that it's not a uh a simple catholic thing this is something that has gone on uh, in the history of Israel, even um, for thousands of years, and it's uh, there's no there there is a reason why in John's uh, second epistle, I think it is Second John, I think it's the last verse. It might even be First John, the last verse, but I think it's Second John, the last verse. Let me look and see if I could pinpoint what it says. But uh, you'll get my gist. Here we go. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, it's it's First John, uh, chapter five, verse twenty-one. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And um, so, even in the in the New Testament, you know, John, the John who hung out with Jesus, uh, warns uh, the church to be careful of idolatry, and that just means that it's probably mm -hmm. going to be easy for us to fall into. Yeah, and and it's also I want to point out one thing is that because of these different person, personalities that, uh, that a part of the Roman Catholic tradition seems to venerate, especially Mary. Mary is like on the pinnacle of veneration, but also with the, the saints as well. It's important to remember what, what, uh, what Paul told Timothy in his letter. Um, and he says in chapter two, verse five in, in, in uh, first Timothy, he says, um, let me find the passage here. Um, he, I'll, I'll start in verse 3. For it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Mm -hmm. um, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all and testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Uh, so the idea here is that there is no other mediator to God except Jesus. 
I don't need a priest. I don't need um, Jesus's birth mother. I don't need any apostle or any saint in history, someone who is sainted by the Roman Catholic Church, to ask them to mediate or to pray on my behalf. Now, we pray for one another. We should ask the living to pray for one another. But that's when you switch from, hey, Brother Bo, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with this, or I need yeah. uh, I need guidance on Intercession. here. Intercession. That's, that's right. different than me, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> praying to my deceased father and saying, hey, Dad, if you're up there, would you kind of nudge Jesus for me and ask, you know, this. Now I'm asking someone else to mediate between me and God. Uh, and that's, that's a huge error. And that's one of the reasons why I, I would say that you're right in asking the question that, yes, it is why they have this tradition, but it, is, it should be avoided. And secondly, uh, the Ten Commandments um, is one of the issues that I've always had, and that is, is that how do they have carved images in their tradition is that they just simply removed, do not make a graven image and worship or bow down to it. In Exodus 20, they just remove it from the catechism. It's just not there. And I, I looked it up just to make sure it hadn't changed. And if you go to uh, Catholic Catechism, I just kind of did a quick search, and it says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not take the name of the Lord or uh, God's name in vain. And then, of course, the Sabbath, honoring your parents, not killing, not committing adultery, not stealing, and so on. Uh, but they just kind of ignore the idea of making graven images and bowing before them. And and if if they do include that, obviously, in, in teaching, because it's in the Bible, uh, they just say, well, we're not worshiping these things. We're just remembering the saints and so it gets really wishy-washy and and if they're being that precise in their language and saying no I just like having a reminder that this saint lived this way and that I want to live my life in a similar manner yes okay fine I can't technically say that you are committing idolatry however it's the masses that do not actually have that kind of intimate knowledge of why you have a statue of a saint or why you have a statue of Mary um, that can cause a lot of confusion, which is why you'll see in Protestant churches none of that. You won't see statues of saints or apostles uh, because we really want to make sure that we're worshiping only God and that no one could who is maybe a babe in Christ or maybe like in the first century struggled leaving a life of polytheism or idolatry to for that to become a stumbling block for them so yeah absolutely good well said adrian let's move on to the yeah thanks for that question that yeah. was that was great you can always make sure um you guys get out your um you know questions to that uh um uh questions uh what is it questions for hope at gmail.com yes. right questions for hope at gmail.com yeah and yeah. adrian's on the He's on the laptop going at it, man. So he's checking all these platforms yeah. to make sure we got the questions <laughs> I, going. I, I try to. That's and I must say, the back, backdrop's looking cool, man. I yeah, like it this. It does definitely create a, a, a better contrast. Yeah, I feel like we're, it's kind of an, a nice mood setter. The, uh, I guess, no. I don't know if that's a name, but I'm going to just go with this follow-up from yesterday. Thanks for your question, by the way, uh, Joy. And no... Uh, K-N-O-W, uh, follow-up from yesterday. Why did Moses allow the people to marry uh, Midianite wives? Is this perspective, is this prescriptive or descriptive in nature, uh, Numbers 31, 18? Hmm. Let me go there. Um, yeah. 
Is it prescriptive or descriptive? Numbers 31, 18. <clears throat> so chapter 31 of Numbers starts off, The Lord said to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, uh, you will be gathered uh, to your people. So Moses said to the people, Arm some of your men and go to war against the Midianites and carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. And so, and then what passage are they talking about? Which one? Uh, I think it's, um, let me go back to the question. Uh, Numbers 31, 18. Okay, so uh, let's go down to... Why did Moses allow the people to marry Midianite wives? <clears throat> so Moses, Eliezer, the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army. Um and let's let's find out why let's read a little let's go back again it says they fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses this is verse 7 and killed every man among their victims it mentions their victims they also killed Balaam son of Beor with the sword remember good old Balaam hmm. and and uh, it says the Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite herds flocks and good goods as plunder they buried all the towns where the Midianites had settled as well as all their camps they took all the plunder and spoils including the people and animals and brought the captive spoils and plunder to moses and eliezer the priest and the israelite assembly at the camp of the plains of moab by the jordan across from jericho so moses eliezer the priest and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp moses was angry with the officers of the army the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds who returned from the battle have you allowed all the women to live he asked them they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord and what happened at Peor so uh, that the plague struck the Lord's people now kill all the boys kill every woman who has slept with the man but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with the man all of you um, who have killed anyone or touched anyone uh, who was killed must stay outside the camp seven days and on the third day um, you know they are to purify themselves and let's see if there's any other um, good insights into this okay so it's basically talking about the situation um, there's a backstory right in this in, and the backstory is one of Balaam um, and Balaam is um, hired by Balak and the if I remember the Midianite king and um, and um, and Balaam tried to put a curse uh, he was hired as like a prophet for hire to put a curse on Israel and he tried three times and three times he failed and and so what he did is he tells Balak hey this is how you can get them and send your women so the women go into Israel and the rest is history. Uh, you know, the men fall for the women. They get involved in idolatry. Moses here seems to, um, I, I would say, in a, in a step of mercy, certainly allow those women that have not been with a man to live. And uh, that's what it says in verse um, 17. Kill all the boys and every woman who has not slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. So it seems like there's uh, a mercy ruling here on those that did not participate, um, but those that did, they were going to be judged, you know, by the Lord. The question on whether it's what uh, was he 
was he prescribing this marriage of oh yeah to the Midianites virgins or was was this something he's just describing? Well, it sounds like he's just he's just it's not I don't he's not saying anything about marrying them. Um, I, I don't see anything there. I just yeah no problem. I just see that he's just saying hey you can let them live, and. Um, you know, so that's what I see in the passage. Um, you know, it, he's not saying, hey, you know, go marry these women that have not been with a man. Uh, he's just saying, hey, the girl, the women that have not slept with someone, you know, um, let them live. Well, I hope that was helpful. And uh, I got a little scratch in my throat, <clears throat> having gotten over a nasty cold or sinus infection <laughs> last couple of weeks. <laughs> You're gonna, you're gonna <coughs> get, me. you're gonna get everybody sick with your cough. No, it's just, uh, <laughs> I always get an itch. I don't know why sitting in this chair at this angle, I don't cough at all during the day until I sit in this chair and get in front of this microphone. Then all of a sudden, it's like there's this little bug that just crawls in there, and <clears throat> gets a big feather and just starts tickling mm. away, and I can't, uh, I can't uh, help but cough. But uh, <clears throat> hello, brothers in Christ. So my question is, witnessing two or rebuking an unbeliever versus a believer. I know unbelievers are not born again and don't really know the sin that binds them versus born again believers. It's a great question. Yeah, what yeah, say that again? <clears throat> um it's who's when it you're by? witnessing who's it from? Uh, I'd have to go back and, oh, okay. and catch the person. Oh, uh, yeah, no problem. Um Robert Block. Thanks, okay. Robert. Yeah, thanks Robert. Good question. So the idea is that um, is witnessing to to or rebuking an unbeliever versus a believer. So when you're witnessing to an unbeliever versus a believer, what and uh, contrasting witnessing versus rebuking. So we we witness to non-believers, we rebuke believers. <clears throat> but is there a time where it's good to rebuke an unbeliever? And the first thing that comes to my mind is First uh, Corinthians chapter. Uh, five, where he talks about do not associate with any so-called brother who's living an immoral lifestyle, to mm -hmm. confront them, to institute church discipline. You know, Matthew, uh, Jesus talks about that in Matthew, is it? Uh, 18? 18, yeah. <clears throat> this is where he describes first talk to the person, then bring two or three, and if not, then bring them before the assembly. Mm -hmm. And if they even then they won't repent, then you basically remove them from fellowship. And mm -hmm. You remove them from the community. And Paul sort of affirms the same idea, but he says, I don't mean to 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 to, to do this to the non-believer because they're mm -hmm. already lost. So the way I've always thought of it is that you can't tell sinners not to sin, <laughs> but you can tell a, a believer not to sin because we have been redeemed. Paul says, how can I, who have died to sin, still live in it? And so the idea is that we do have victory. We don't become sinless, but we should sin less. And, and, and so when you're talking or addressing a non-believer, it's kind of pointless to point out moral issues unless you're helping them understand that they are a sinner. So, for example, uh, Paul describes the law that is used as a schoolmaster to bring a person to Christ. And so in that sense, you can talk about sin, but you're not rebuking someone in the sense that, gosh, that's immoral, unless you're doing it as a citizen. Like, for example, you shouldn't, you know, <laughs> abuse your children because it's wrong, and you're doing it as a citizen. But when it comes to uh, making inroads in that person's life spiritually, you really want to focus on 
the need for a savior and not necessarily rebuke them, rebuking that person for a particular sin. And of course, as part of the witnessing process, you're always wanting to help person come to that place of conviction that they are a sinner. And so you can point out uh, typical sinful behaviors and attitudes that human beings have as a, the hallmark of the sinful life, the, the life devoid of God. And so I would say that that's very appropriate to do with a non-believer, but uh, it really doesn't make any, <clears throat> it's not helpful to confront a, a non-believer about a particular sin thinking that somehow you're going to win them over by making them uh, repent of that one sin. They need Jesus, uh, not necessarily to stop you know, doing this or that. <clears throat> and so that's kind of my initial take on it. Yeah, uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Obviously, the uh, context here is uh, it, we're talking about a person of God, right, uh, may be thoroughly equipped. Um, so obviously we're talking about someone who is in the kingdom, you know, they, uh, so the word of God is useful for correcting and rebuking so that the person who's in God can go, oh yeah, that's something I need to work on. That's something I need to repent of. That's something I need to correct. That's something I need to pray about. That's something I, you know, that kind of idea I need to give over, I need to lay that down or whatever it is. Um, but I, I, I kind of understand that, that, you know, the, the, I, we have to be careful, you know, do we, you know, when you, if, if you were to, to kind of rephrase the question a little bit and just say something like, hey, do we correct people at all? Like the answer, the answer um, I would say has to be, yeah. <laughs> you know, like we, you know, Paul says in the book of Second Corinthians chapter five in verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. You know, meaning we want to persuade people. We want to get into talks with people. We want to be able to correct ideas. We want to be able to help people see maybe logical fallacies, um, you know, problems with thinking, the way we're think the thinking. So, like, if you're sitting in a college and your professor says, you know, there's no way we can know, you know, um, anything. You know, it's, we just, how do we know, you know, or they say something like, you know, just out to lunch like that, and, and you raise your hand, you should try to correct them and say, well, if you don't know anything, how do you know that you don't know anything, you know? Or you, you should try to correct false thinking. Sure. Yeah. And, and so in that way, <clears throat> yeah, you're rebuking in, this, in the broad sense of the term of just correcting someone, you know? Um, but as far as bringing them to an understanding of, of God, you know, that's, that's another story, you know, yeah, that's, and, and typically when a, we think of rebuke, you know, if I, if I am living in, or if I've committed a sin, yeah, it's your responsibility yeah. to rebuke me, right, Adrian. Yeah, re re rebuking is almost <clears throat> like, it's almost like a term, it's like if you're playing baseball, it's like a, you know, you're on the team, and that's kind of a word that's mm -hmm. used in the game, yeah. you know, in the game of baseball, you know, so <clears throat> it's, that passage in Corinthians, I'll just reference it real quick in uh, chapter 5 it's verse 9 I, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually moral people it I certainly did not mean with sexually moral people of the world or with the covetous or exor 
<clears throat> extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Uh, for what do I have to do with judging those also who are outside? Do I not judge those who are inside? And he's talking about outside the church versus inside the church. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So the idea here is that uh, there is a different treatment between the believer and the non-believer when it comes to addressing like specific sin in your life, like personal exhortation rebuking but I, I agree with you that it, generally speaking yeah there is a place for telling the world hey that's immoral that's wrong I mean that absolutely because that's the spirit does that that's one yeah. of the jobs that the spirit does when he comes into the world is he judges it he condemns the world but uh, <clears throat> I remember hearing during our staff training with Cam Campus Crusade we had JP Moreland for a whole week five hours a day uh, yeah. doing apologetics and lessons and and he talked about how uh, he was at a like a party or something, and and someone said, "Well, I think animals are just as you know, even dol like dolphins are just as much uh, as valuable as a human being." And he turned to him and he said, "He goes, you're a moral slob, sir, and you need psychological help. You mean to tell me that if my house is on fire, and I have a dog and a daughter, you're going to flip a coin?" And then we were shocked that he would talk this way to an you know a, an intellectual non-Christian person that he would be that. You know, Bold. abrasive. Yeah. And uh, he says, sometimes even the non-Christian just needs to be shamed when they say such ridiculous things. And I was yeah. like, you know, I think he's he's kind of right about that. Uh, I think there is a place. Uh, you yep. just remember that there is a, um, there is a, that we do, when it comes to the, the non-believer, we can't confront them about sins, but we confront them about sin. And uh, when it comes to the believer, we confront them about sins hmm. because they've already been cleansed of sin. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, absolutely. And just make sure your words are grace seasoned with salt with those that uh, you're talking to. You know, that's what the Bible tells us. And uh, um, and uh, re to remember mercy. You know, um, you know, Jesus's half brother James says, you know, judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who is not merciful. And um, and that's kind of a scary passage. I mean, you you meaning you better be merciful. You know, blessed are the merciful. And uh, you know, James is remembering his brother's words there in the in uh, the Beatitudes. And uh, so you know, when we're talking to people, we have to uh, we want to we want to persuade. We want to help them see things correctly. We want to we want to help them see a <coughs> biblical worldview and what that means. Um, but we're going to have, but before we rebuke, we're going to have to make sure that we are um, talking to them and they understand uh, the worldview that we're bringing to the conversation. Mm. You know, we can't just go into that conversation and start like, you know, rebuking people when they might not understand our worldview properly. Mm. And, you know, coming from my background of secular progressive, um, you know, I I had no clue the Christian worldview. I mean, you know, I, many Christians tried to rebuke me, and I had no clue what that even meant. Mm -hmm. I, I had no clue what they were talking about. It, it, it was like it was like want 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 want. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. it didn't make any sense to me because um, I didn't understand their worldview. I was raised with a totally different worldview. And when you're addressing this, the topic of sin to a non-Christian. 
it depends on their attitude. If they are yeah. pr- proud, yep. and I'm not, I, I'm not a bad person. You know, remember what Jesus did. If you were to kind of analyze how Jesus treated people, he always gave law to the proud yep. and grace to the humble. And mm-hmm. there are non-Christians who have a general humility about themselves when they realize that they know that there's something wrong with them. And so you give people like that in conversation grace. You don't have to convict them of sin. They, mm-hmm. they, they are living life in conviction of sin. They're just waiting to hear the good news. But there are those non-believers who... Uh, just don't think that they are bad people and need a savior. And so those are the people you give law. Yeah. Give them the law to bring the knowledge of sin as a schoolmaster so that they can be brought to Christ. Yeah, one of my favorite, uh, obviously, writers is Blaise Pascal from the 1600s. And that guy, his writing is all about correcting false attitudes. I mean, he is talking to non-believers all the time of his day. So there's a place to correcting people. Mm. Um, but it, we have to do it tactfully, you know. Well, we'll uh, try to get to the rest of your questions tomorrow. We, uh, we can, I'm sorry, on Monday, uh, one more question was, what should biblical dating look like for teens? What ground rules should, you, uh, should parents lay? I, I am a parent of three young, young boys, and so I will definitely be addressing that in the next decade or so. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> but that would be a great question, great question for Monday. T- yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks thanks for joining us today, and have a great weekend. We'll be here uh, same time, same place on Monday. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.